0: PlushCare.com slash weightloss. Happy New Year.
1: September 10th, 1999 was a difficult morning for the Dishon family who lived in Shepherdsville, Kentucky. Shepherdsville is situated on the banks of the Salt River. In 1999, it had a population of about 8,000 people. It's believed that before the city was established in 1793, American Aboriginals lived in the area for at least 15,000 years. That morning, Edna Dishon got ready for work and her husband, Mike, woke up their two sons so that they could catch the school bus. Mike let their daughter, 17-year-old Jessica, sleep because she was going to drive herself to school. Mike, Edna, and their two sons got out of the house on time, leaving Jessica home alone. When Edna returned home at about 1.30 that afternoon, she saw Jessica's car in the driveway. She thought that her daughter may have stayed home that day, or returned after spending the morning at school. But Jessica wasn't at home. Edna called her husband and asked if he had driven Jessica to school that day. But Mike said he hadn't driven her and she was home when he left for work. Edna looked in Jessica's car and found some items that concerned her deeply. On the driver's seat were Jessica's purse and cell phone. On the floor of the car was one of her shoes. It appeared that Jessica had tried to make a call on her cell phone. The numbers 9 and 1 had been pressed. Edna knew something was wrong, so she called Mike and he rushed home. Edna called the school and learned That Jessica hadn't shown up that day. Mike and Edna went to the sheriff's department and tried to report Jessica missing. The sheriff's deputy they talked to said she may have chosen to disappear. Her parents thought that this was ridiculous. If she had chosen to disappear, she probably would have taken her phone and purse, but she definitely would have taken both of her shoes. That night, Jessica didn't return home. About 24 hours after they realized she was missing, they reported her missing once again. Two sheriff's deputies came to the Dishon's home. They examined Jessica's car without gloves, but they didn't do anything like dust for prints. Also, no major searches for Jessica were conducted by the sheriff's department. The Dishon family turned to the media. They accused the Sheriff's Department of dragging their feet on the investigation. The Dishon family also conducted searches for Jessica. Jessica's uncle, Stanley Dishon, suggested searching the river bottoms, which is an area near the Salt River. But no trace of Jessica was found. One night, not long after Jessica went missing, one of her brothers was outside their home and he was sure he heard Jessica scream for help. Mike grabbed his shotgun and went looking. His brother Stanley pulled up to the property and asked what had happened. Mike explained the situation and they went looking for Jessica. Off in the distance, they noticed a fire. They walked up to the fire and found their neighbor, David Brooks, who went by the name Bucky, burning some clothes in a barrel. The relationship between the Dishons and the Brooks was acrimonious. Mike was suspicious of Bucky Brooks because he was the only person in the area who wouldn't allow their property to be searched. But after Mike saw Brooks burning the clothes, the Sheriff's Department were able to search the property with cadaver dogs. They found two pairs of gloves with a scent of decomposing bodies on them. But the Sheriff's Department didn't think that this was enough evidence to arrest Brooks for anything. Mike was becoming more frustrated with the sheriff's department with each passing day. So he called the FBI and asked them for help. They sent several agents who dusted for prints and impounded Jessica's car. They used helicopters in their searches for her. They also searched Bucky Brooks's property. In his barn, they found a photograph of Jessica.
0: Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show.
1: On September 27, 1999, 17 days after Jessica went missing, a woman was driving from Mount Washington, Kentucky to Shepherdsville. The two cities are about 10 miles from each other. She was driving along the river bottoms and noticed something odd beside a tree. She got out of her vehicle to get a better look. She realized it was a human body, so she called the police. Although the body was unrecognizable, it was believed to be the body of Jessica Deshawn so the FBI sealed off the crime scene and their forensic team began investigating. Mike and Edna were told that a body had been found and they believed it was Jessica's body. Edna went to the scene and identified the body as her 17-year-old daughter because of a butterfly tattoo she had. One of Jessica's feet was missing, as were some of her fingers. She also had a broken jaw. The cause of death was strangulation. The medical examiner didn't believe that Jessica was killed right away. Instead, she was possibly kept alive for up to three days before she was killed. During that time, she was violently sexually assaulted and tortured. Of course, this made Ed Mike even more frustrated with the local sheriff's department. After the body was found, the FBI interviewed Bucky Brooks. Brooks said he saw Jessica walking down the road on the morning she went missing. The FBI thought that this was odd because all the evidence pointed to Jessica being kidnapped from her car. Why would he lie about something like that? Brooks later said that he didn't see her that morning because he was having sex with his wife that morning. But his wife said that they didn't have sex that morning. Brooks continued to say other things that were later proved to be untrue. They had Brooks take a polygraph exam. He failed it. He was given two more polygraph exams and he failed both. In January 2001, Brooks was charged with the murder of Jessica Dishon, but he didn't go to trial until two years later, in January 2003. During those two years, Brooks sat in prison. The prosecution's main evidence was Brooks' conflicting statements. The defense argued that the investigation was botched from the start. For example, the Sheriff's Department didn't store Jessica's remains properly. They were supposed to be kept in a freezer, but they were left out to rot. After two weeks of testimony, a detective with the Sheriff's Department testified. He said that Brooks had failed three polygraph exams, The results of polygraphic exams are not allowed to be used as evidence in a criminal trial. As a result, the judge declared a mistrial. After the mistrial, six jury members met with a reporter for the Courier-Journal. The jury members said that they were ready to vote to acquit. They did not believe that Brooks should have been charged with the murder because the district attorney didn't have any evidence against him. All the district attorney could prove was that Jessica Dishon had been murdered. Edna and Mike were devastated by the mistrial. They wanted Brooks to be tried again for the murder. But in September 2003, the district attorney's office said they dropped the charges against Bucky Brooks. They said that they considered the murder of Jessica Dishon an open case. After that, her case went cold. The years that went by were tough on the dishons They never changed Jessica's room. It looked exactly like it did on the day she went missing. The tragedy rocked Edna and Mike's marriage. They ended up getting divorced and stopped talking to each other. Ten years went by. In 1999, when Jessica was murdered, for the first time cell phones could send text messages to phones on different networks so people started using text more often. Ericsson Nokia made most cell phones. In 2002, text messages reached the tipping point and became a common way to communicate. In 2007, the first iPhone was launched. In 2012, smartphones were common, and the iPhone was in its fifth generation. In June 2012, the Sheriff's Department hired a new cold case investigator, Lynn Hunt. The first case Hunt wanted to look at was Jessica Dishon's case. Unfortunately, since the case was so poorly handled, the Sheriff's Department didn't have much evidence. A lot of the physical evidence, like Jessica's purse, shoe, and cell phone, had been returned to her family. Detective Hunt got the evidence back from the family. Also, Bucky Brooks' defense lawyer had hired private investigators to investigate the case. The lawyer still had the files, so Hunt cut them as well. In the lawyer's files, Hunt found something that explained why Brooks failed the polygraph exams. A mental evaluation was performed on Brooks, and it turned out he had an IQ of 61. Someone with that level of IQ is considered to have a mild mental disability. During the polygraph exams, he may not have understood the questions or how he answered them. The failed polygraph exams were the strongest evidence against Brooks. But since the results could be explained, Detective Hunt didn't think that Brooks was a likely suspect. The other evidence against Brooks was that he was seen burning clothes and the gloves found on his property with a scent of decomposing body on them. But it was never proved to be Jessica's clothes he was burning or the clothes that he was burning had any forensic evidence on them that connected him to Jessica's murder. Also, burning clothing isn't illegal. As for the gloves, if Brooks was burning clothes that had evidence on them, why wouldn't he have burned the gloves as well? Also, the gloves didn't have Jessica's scent on them. The scent may have even come from a decomposing animal. The bottom line was that there was not much strong definitive evidence that Bucky Brooks killed Jessica. In the defense's files, there were notes on another possible suspect. It was a man who said he was Jessica's drug dealer. Hunt interviewed the drug dealer. He had an alibi for the time of the murder that was confirmed by an independent source, so he was ruled out as a suspect. Lynn Hunt worked on the case for over a year. Then the prison informant reached out to her and said he had information on Jessica's case. The informant, having convicted of crimes related to having sex with children, he told Hunt that he had shared a cell with a man who confessed to killing Jessica. So Hunt met with the informant. The informant knew many details about the murder that had not been made public. He knew that Jessica had been kept alive for several days and that she had been mutilated. The informant said that the man had killed her because he was mad at her because she had started dating a young man. So, who exactly was this other inmate? It was Jessica's uncle, Stanley Dishon. Three years after Jessica was murdered, Stanley Dishon was convicted of sexually abusing a 10-year-old girl and an 8-year-old girl. One of the victims
0: Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show.
1: Was another one of his nieces. Stanley was the person who suggested searching the river bottoms. But he told the informant he had intentionally kept his family away from the body He said that he kept Jessica alive in a barn close to where her body was found. He said the kids used to party in the barn. The informant told Hunt that there was a way to verify what he was saying. Stanley told him he had buried some of Jessica's personal belongings under a fallen tree near the barn. Lynn Hunt and her team, which included one of Jessica's brothers, dug in the area but found nothing of interest. They decided to give up the search and they were driving away from the area. Jessica's brother was in the same car as Hunt and he pointed out an abandoned barn where they used to party. They decided to look in the barn. They found a fitted bed cover sheet. The investigator thought it looked like the bed sheets on Jessica's bed. So they went directly to Jessica's bedroom, which hadn't been changed in the 14 years since she went missing. Not only did it look like the sheet came from the same set on the bed, but the fitted cover sheet from Jessica's bed was missing. This was enough evidence for Hunt to prove that the informant was telling the truth. Hunt believes that Stanley had been sexually abusing Jessica for years. When he found out that she was dating a boy, he became angry with jealousy. Jessica may have also threatened to tell people What Stanley had done to her. Stanley knew that Jessica would be home alone in the morning. He grabbed her as she was trying to get into her car. She then ran into the house and went into the bedroom. Stanley followed her and attacked her in the bedroom. He knocked her out and broke her jaw. He wrapped her in the bedsheet and carried her out to his vehicle. He drove her out to the abandoned barn where he held her for three days. During those three days, he raped and tortured her. Finally, he strangled her to death and then dumped her body. In October 2013, 14 years after the murder, Stanley Dishon was charged with the murder of his niece. At the time, he was almost finished serving his sentence for abusing the two girls. When Mike Dishon found out that his brother was charged with the murder of his daughter, he wanted Stanley to get the death penalty. As Stanley's extended family learned about him being charged with the murder, three family members came forward and said that Stanley had sexually abused them when they were kids. Two other people also said that Stanley raped them when they were younger. So in addition to being charged with Jessica's murder, he was also charged with sexually abusing five other children between 1973 and 2002. This complicated matters for the district attorney. If they went to trial, the victims would have to testify and the district attorney thought it would be too traumatic to relive what they went through. So they made a plea deal with Stanley. Stanley took an offered plea to manslaughter and the other charges of rape. An Alfred plea allows someone to plead guilty without admitting guilt. He acknowledges that if the case went to trial, the district attorney would have enough evidence to convict them. Stanley was sentenced to a total of 20 years of prison. 63 year old Stanley is serving his sentence at the Kentucky State Penitentiary in Frankfurt. He is eligible for parole in December 2028. He will finish his sentence in August 2033 when he is 77. Stanley claims that he is innocent. Anna does not think it is fair that she has to work every day to pay taxes so Stanley can sit in prison. Mike says that he hates his brother and he will be waiting for him when he gets out of prison. There is one disturbing footnote to this story. In the defense's case files, there was a letter from another informant who said that Stanley had confessed to killing his niece. The Sheriff's Department and the District Attorney received a copy of this letter years earlier in 2002 while Bucky Brooks was awaiting trial. The letter was essentially ignored. Had they talked to the informant, the case may have been solved a decade earlier and Bucky Brooks wouldn't have had to suffer through a trial. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe.